This is a Sunday Talk by Joel, titled, Passion, recorded May 24th, 1992, at the Center for Sacred Sciences in Eugene, Oregon. Abina Rabi, who's a great Sufi uh, mystic and sage, he's called the Sheikh of Sheikhs in Islam, the Master of Masters, said that all worshippers are under the rule of passion. indicating that there's no such thing as worship without passion. And in every tradition, there's this emphasis on passion. In Christianity, Jesus says, what is the greatest commandment? Love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, and with all thy mind. And the second is like unto it, love thy neighbor as thyself. Both of these, by the way, are, taking, are taken from the Torah, so they're not Jesus' original statements. He's just picking something out of the Jewish tradition. And he says, on these two hang all the law and the prophets. But without this, you can take the whole rest of it and dump it. Love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, not with a little piece of it, with all thy soul. Not just sometimes. With all thy mind. Big order, isn't it? Well, it sounds like a big order. We hear that and we say, well, what kind of teaching is that? Who could possibly do that? Krishna, in the Bhagavad Gita, tells Arjuna over and over again things like, be devoted to me in all that you do. Think only of me. Meditate only on me. In solidarity and compassion with all creatures, do all your works for me. It's the same idea. It's this single-pointed passion for the divine. In Buddhism, there's no central manifest image of the divine. But nevertheless, for instance, in Tibetan Buddhism, they will not teach you anything except perhaps some basic meditation, until you've developed bodhicitta, the mind of compassion. The compassion here is the compassion of the bodhisattva. The compassion of the bodhisattva is so great that in mythological terms, the bodhisattva wins enlightenment, stands on the threshold of nirvana, but instead of passing into personal liberation and release, returns the world to save all creatures and will not enter nirvana until all other creatures have entered nirvana. We get an idea of what sort of compassion this would require, what sort of passion. And Sufism, of course, over and over is described as the path of love. Just the path of love. All the Sufi poetry... Uh, is nothing but love for the divine. Surrendering all to the divine. Rabia, one of the great Sufi saints, writes, Lord, give the things of this world to your enemies. That's interesting, right? Give your enemies the Cadillacs and, you know, the chips to Hawaii and all that sort of stuff. Give the things of the other world to your friends. Those are the spiritual consolations but give to me yourself alone. See, she doesn't want 
uh, the things of this world, and she doesn't even want all the spiritual goodies you could get. Just yourself alone. Now, at the same time, it's maddening because all these teachers and teachings also tell you you have to practice detachment. So Jesus said, take no thought of you know, what you'll eat, what you should put on. Look at the lilies of the field. They don't care about all this stuff. And Krishna tells Arjuna in the Bhagavad Gita over and over again, you have to be detached from the, from the opposites, from likes and dislikes, from desires and fears. And the Buddha says, you know, whoever pursues their desires and fears and stuff are going to suffer. There's no such thing as liberation without detachment. The same thing is true of Sufism, Taoism. These two great teachings here. One is this teaching of the single-pointed devotion. And the other is detachment from all your desires, from all your likes, from all your dislikes. And of course, when spiritual seekers read these teachings and start to try and practice it, it's, it's crazy. What does this mean? How can these two teachings be reconciled? How can you be dispassionate and passionate at the same time? What would that mean? It's like you have to be aware. Passion, I, for me, it's like a direction to what I want to be involved in. And disattachment is just watching myself. So I so I'm correct or apply myself to... Uh, Ah, this is beautiful now. Passion is sets a direction. It's sort of the energy of the flight. You can think of it both as a uh, something that pushes, the way a car is pushed by its internal energy, or something that draws, the way a magnet draws. Its power is what it is. Passion towards what you want but at the same time, it requires detachment from the powers that draw you away from what you want. And also to be aware of what's happening. First comes awareness. Absolutely right. Pay attention. If you, if you don't have attention, if you don't have mindfulness, you don't know what's going on in your own head. So you have to become aware of that first. But once you are aware, you find... What? You find what St. Paul said. You know, our big problem is we don't do the things that we know we ought to do, and we do do the things we know we oughtn't to do. Now, this is a very interesting thing. When you examine your life, isn't it true? I mean, it just forget about spiritual stuff. I don't know what it is. You, uh, you know, you snack on goodies and you eat those fattening potato chips or whatever, and, you know, you shouldn't do it. You smoke, I smoke. Well, for health reasons, I shouldn't do it. We do the things that we know we shouldn't do, and we don't do the things we know we should do. Now, what happens if you have 
uh, some orientation, some goal in your life. Again, forget about uh, something spiritual here. This applies uh, throughout all of life. It's one of those rules you mentioned earlier, a universal fact. Notice Abin Arabi said, every worshiper is under the rule of passion. Now, truly speaking, what does worship mean? Worship means to be turned towards what is most worthy, to be orientated towards what is most worthy. Everybody is a worshiper. You may not be a spiritual worshiper, but you have some orientation, what you think is most worthy. It may be a career. You may want to be a lawyer. People who are successful in careers have a passion for it. You don't get through law school without some sort of passion. You might get through dentistry. I had a dentist once who forced himself to be a dentist because his parents wanted him to be a dentist. Got through dentistry. Almost anything worth doing in life where you achieve some mastery over it, you are driven by some passion. So we're under the rule of passion. Now, if you want to be a lawyer, let's say, you have to make sacrifices to go to law school. You want to be a ballerina. Again, anything you want to do, you'll be uh, studying late at night while your friends are partying. You have to give up something. The same principle applies on a spiritual path, exactly. We hear a teaching like uh, Jesus' teaching. Love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy mind, with all thy soul. And maybe then when you're sitting there meditating, uh, you get some glimpse of this, and you think, oh, this is wonderful, I'll do this. Well, you find you, it's very difficult. You know, the gong rings and then people start talking and whatnot. And you, are you not loving God with all your heart, all your mind, your, all your soul? You've forgotten completely about that. You've forgotten your own resolve that this is what you were going to do. So this uh, teaching of detachment evolves out of the practice. You try to love God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul. Or, let's put it in other terms, if that doesn't appeal to some people, you try to conform to the Tao. The whole business of Taoism is conformity to the way, to the great way, to be in harmony with it. You try to do that in your daily life, you forget all about Tao, you know? Now you start to observe, and Petrel's absolutely right. If you don't have attention, if you don't have mindfulness, you're not going to be able to observe this. And you start to observe and you start to see what is interfering here? What's the obstacle? Well, you have other passions and desires and fears. You want to be comfortable. You want to be secure. You don't have to worry about where the rent's coming from next month. You want to have a nice car so your friends don't think you're a pauper. So they'll know you're successful. It's very important you're successful to have a nice car. Not because of the car, but it's no, no good being successful unless people know it. So you have to have a nice car, and you have to have the right clothes and all that, because you have to announce to everybody you're successful. It's awful to be just privately successful, unrecognized. I knew a, an actress who was 
oh, for a few years, a quite famous star. And we were walking around a little shopping center in Malibu, and she was walking like this, and, and everybody was looking. And I thought my fly was open. <laughs> and I looked down, you know, and then I realized, oh, I'm with, you know, let's call her Jane. So then later I said, how do you put up with this, Jane? I mean, everybody stares at you all the time. She says, it's true, it's a nuisance sometimes, but it's the only way I know I'm worth anything. She was very honest about herself, you know. We have all these other desires, and they distract us from this passion. And so you start to say, well, how am I going to deal with this? So you practice detachment from those other desires. Do I really need a new car next year? How much of my life actually uh, hours goes into making the money to buy the car and then to do the payments and the interest? And, you know, you get a new car. It's not just that. You have to go service it because the warranty and you have to go to the dealer. Usually you know, the dealer servicing is much more expensive than an independent. I mean, it's, you know. Do I really need this? Notice here, you're not getting rid of the desire. You're not feeling bad because you have a desire for it. But you find, though, if you don't act on the desire, the desire rises and it passes. Freedom. It arises and passes. You don't beat yourself up saying, oh, I'm so terrible, I'm so worldly because I want a car, I dream about cars. If you've been meditating, you realize you don't have much control over your mind, what it generates, what it wants, and so forth. It'll go on wanting cars and this and that for a while. You know, I once uh, knew a junkie, a heroin junkie. And uh, this is when I was much younger, and some friends of mine and I were talking to him. Oh, they were all jazz musicians and stuff, and there was sort of a debate about heroin. Have any of you ever tried heroin? It's a tremendous feeling of contentment. You know, it's the, there's a reason why people like heroin. Very seductive. In a materialist society, there's no reason not to be a heroin addict, by the way, because this, this is the whole point, just to feel good. And you're going to drop dead anyway. And so supposing you can feel good for uh, hours and hours, you know, you have a little shorter life, but so what? <laughs> From a materialist point of view, it's the most rational thing is to go out and become a heroin addict. I'm, I'm telling you, truly. Point was, I was talking to this junkie, and we were talking about the problems of then of being addicted, and what a terrible thing it would be a slave to some drug or something. And he said, you know, he said, you straight people, in those days straight meant not, not a junkie, he said, you straight people, you're just as addicted as I am. He said, though, you just have all these little addictions. He says, every day you get up and you're addicted. You have to have your cars and your toasters and all this stuff in your job. You have to have all this. this. I only have one addiction. I need my heroin. I get up in the morning, and my search is to get my heroin, and I'm happy. I don't want anything else. <laughs> so I put all my desires into one desire. Now, this is what the practice of detachment is about. Our desires, like our minds, are scattered. We practice meditation to achieve a mental stability a stability of attention, so that it's not scattered all over the place. It goes hand in hand with a stability of the heart. 
so that you're not walking around all day being pulled this way and that way by all these petty little desires and driven by fears, the opposite of desire and so forth. So through practice and detachment, it's a little bit like a gardener pruning a tree. The tree grows, puts out all these things, grows every which way, and by cutting back, the tree starts to grow strong and straight, and then the fruit it puts out is juicy and full. So this isn't bad the example. Uh, it works just the way that it works with a junkie. Now, it's interesting. In the beginning, this process of practicing detachment is very difficult. It's very difficult because in the beginning, the joy that comes with this passion, this spiritual passion, this devotion, is very hidden. You only get a glimpse of it once in a while. It's very hard to believe that it's actually this overwhelming. That when you listen to these poets, uh, that they aren't just, you know, making up something. That they're actually expressing something so magnificent, so overwhelming, that if you knew about it, it would be no problem. You wouldn't have other desires. They would all pale compared to this. So first part of the spiritual path is very difficult. You will not experience that until you do the pruning. Unfortunately, you have to do the work first. Now, it's a little bit like jumping into uh, an ocean in order to learn to swim. You don't know how to swim, you go look at the ocean, and somebody can tell you how to swim in terms intellectually. You move your arms this way and you kick your feet and when you get in you relax and so forth. But you still are uh, certain that when you jump in that water you're going to sink to the bottom and die. You cannot be convinced beforehand. You may have faith. You might see other people can swim and so you have a certain amount of faith. But personally, until you jump in the water yourself and you realize you can float, and not only can you float, and not only won't you drown, it is fun that you can frolic in the waves, that what terrified you suddenly becomes a source of delight. Until you actually go do it, you won't know for yourself. And you have to get over that first hurdle. You yourself have to go get in the ocean. Well, you yourself have to practice the detachment. You yourself have to do that work. Now, it's not just black and white. It's not just you do this and then this happens. There's a overlap. You start practicing detachment. You start cultivating this devotion. And it gets easier and easier. It's true. The desires that you can't get rid of by will, they will wither away. They just won't be worth it. And you can see, again, a parallel from your own lives, uh, just in a mundane sense. The things that you were so concerned about as a teenager. Remember, like, popularity. I guess I was going to say you're no longer concerned about it, but we are in a more sophisticated kind of way. But there were certain things as a teenager that just consumed you. Then as you get older, you look back and you smile at yourself, you know. And you say, well, I was young then. I didn't know any better. 
you're not pulled by the same desires and pushed by the same kinds of fears. The mechanism's still there. It retreats to another level or it gets much more sophisticated. But this happens on a spiritual path. After a while, the things that used to uh, pull you, the attachments you used to have, that scattered your heart as well as your mind, just start to dry up. And the more this runs, and the more joy you see comes from this inner fountain, if you like, that you just have to make room for, the more this stream takes over in your life, and now you start experiencing what all mystics talked about. You don't even have to do much anymore. You're taken over by something. You just have to surrender to it. You know, St. Francis prayed, uh, his image was that God was an eagle and that he was a lamb. And he prayed that God would come down and grab him in his talons and carry him off. This image of surrendering to this power, if you like, the power of the divine. Meister Eckhart says, let God do the work, let man be free. Now, again, this isn't you go off for 20 years necessarily into a cave and wait until you've attained enlightenment, although if you went off to a cave for 20 years and then you attained enlightenment and then you came back and you only had five years left on earth, you would be more effective than if you'd spent the whole 25 years floundering around. The truth of the matter is, in the process of a spiritual path, you begin to have an effect. Do you know what I mean? You can have an effect by teaching what you know. If you've gained some freedom from meditation, you can teach others that. But the greatest effect you have is just to be as free as you can. It's just by example. It's by your own uh, calmness and tranquility. By your own contentment. By your own joy. That's the greatest teaching you can give anybody. And that's the greatest way you bring the kingdom of heaven to earth. Or you show, for instance, in Buddhism, uh, that nirvana and samsara are the same. This very world is nirvana, if we saw it properly. The bee is Shiva, doing the dance of Shiva, literally, truly. We don't see that properly. I'm not being poetic when I say, there's Shiva doing the dance. Not in the least. You all take it poetically. That is the dance of Shiva. It's right here. Like Jesus said, the kingdom of God is spread upon the earth and we just don't see it. Why don't we see it? Yes, Mara. What about the, um, you talked earlier about the Bodhisattva um, sort of rejecting the opportunity of nirvana to come back and be compassionate for the rest of us. I mean, why is that an either-or thing? I mean, isn't that... Yeah, I said, remember I said, mythologically speaking, it's a way of communicating the great depth of compassion of the Bodhisattva. It's good you bring this up, because it segues into my last point here. When we speak about desires, and when you read about desires in spiritual teachings and traditions, and on one hand it says you should have this desire for God, and God alone, as all the bhakti say, as Rabia says. I want you alone, and not any other consolations, not any of the other goodies, and so forth. And then you hear this teaching about being free of desire, having no desires. 
There's one other element in here, and if you just in your mind always decide what they're talking about and insert either of these words in here, you'll have the, a, a key to all the scriptures on this point. And that is selfish or unselfish. The desire for God, the, the love that Jesus is talking about, is not a selfish love. Now, again, this is something that unfolds during a spiritual path. You don't, don't decide intellectually, I'm going to be unselfish. Every spiritual seeker starts selfishly. Mostly people start because they're unhappy and they're suffering and they want to end their suffering and it's very selfish. Or they might have gotten some glimpse of the radiance, the light, the joy. Sometimes very spontaneously, just walking down the street and boom, you know, and then it fades and then they want that again. So on a spiritual path, what you find is the more that you prune the selfish, the crudely selfish desires, likes and dislikes, the more you detach from them, the more this one desire takes root in your soul, the more it flames and burns, and this is another image, it burns away the impurities, the more you begin to see that even in this desire, there is still selfishness. You yourself see it. And the more you see there's still selfishness, the more you can then see what your attachments are. Very subtle level attachments here. And the more you can see those attachments, the more you can let them go. So you end up like with Catherine of Genoa, praying to God not to give her so many of these emotional feelings, because they get in the way. They're a danger, as the beauty of Allah is a danger. Because you can become attached to these feelings. You're just looking to feel good for yourself. So she prays, just give me pure love, which is naked. Naked of what? Naked of any self-interest here. Brother Lawrence another great Christian mystic, had a very simple path. His path was to do the will of God. And the whole practice of doing the will of God is just this practice. If you decide to do the will of God, that's a great practice. That's a beginning. That's a first step. Now you face tremendous problems. Right? What is the will of God? How can you do the will of God? Well, to do the will of God, you have to become detached from your own will. And more and more, he said about his life, he lived in a monastery. He wasn't a priest or anything. I think it was some, I don't even think it was a full-fledged monk. I'm not sure about that. But he lived in a monastery with the brothers. And, and he said, you know, I like the going to church and all that. The rituals, they're all nice. He said, but that's not really where it's at. He said, it's just very simple. I just spent my life doing the will of God, or trying to do the will of God, I should say. Trying to see what that meant in every moment. And he said, the more his practice unfolded, more he surrendered his selfish desires and so forth, the more joy and contentment he experienced. And finally, he began to experience this ecstasy. And it would come and go. And then, the, and he, But he wanted it. He wanted God all the time. And then finally he realized, but if I was really doing the will of God, I'd accept this. It's not God's will that I've got all the time. 
So he let go of wanting God all the time, and from that point on, he had God all the time. That's a little judo in there. So this teaching about the devotion is a uh, a teaching that unfolds. It's not something you just decide to do. It's something you start to explore. It's something you cultivate. And the process of cultivating is pruning away the other things. It is focusing your attention and your devotion in one direction. Whatever that, whatever the symbol may be for you, Brahman, Tao, God, Allah, Elohim, doesn't matter. The Buddha. And that is what teaches you. That process teaches you. It keeps exposing your subtler and subtler attachments. And the more powerful, the hotter, the fiery this flame gets, the easy it is to, uh, to drop them. They dissolve. Who wants them? Who wants the goods of the earth that hobble your feet, as Lao Tzu says? Who wants to be emburdened and encumbered with all the cares and woes of Martha? We look at the saints and say, how heroic. Look at all they've given up. And they just devote themselves to serving humanity. I'm thinking of like Mother Teresa. And we see the videos and how they, the Mother Teresa and her daughters, they all sleep on these, you know, hard floors in the middle of San Francisco. Has anybody seen that video? They, somebody gave them a mansion, I mean, a mansion, a big house. And they go through with the, uh, the manager, the, not the landlord, but the super, that's what we used to call them in New York. And he's saying, now, you see, there are these rugs here, the previous tenants left, and, and they're very serviceable, and the, the uh, sisters look at each other and they say, no, we won't be needing those. He says, oh, no rugs, okay, they're going to go. And they go through the whole building like this, and the sisters say, no, we won't be needing that. So finally, they're in the basement, and here's the heater. And I said, now, here's how you control the heater. See, so the thermostat, and the sisters look at each other, we won't be needing that. Well, no, okay, <laughs> won't be needing that, it goes. And we look at them and say, oh, this is heroic, you know? The sacrifices they've made, the austere life they live. I could never do that. Now, they look at us, and they, what do they feel? Nothing but compassion for us. Look at our discontent. Look at our frustration. Look at our unhappiness. Pulled this way and that way by the likes and dislikes never knowing the joy of God. It's an occasion for nothing but the deepest compassion. It's not a sacrifice being a saint. Complete selflessness is to be, to be totally empty of self and to be totally full of God, the divine. And I say one last thing about all this, because it all sounds uh, too good to be true. The spiritual path delivers your wildest dreams beyond your wildest dreams. And the only thing I have to say to you is, what do you have to lose? If all the mystics are wrong, let's say they're all psychotic and bananas and dumb. Let's say they're all wrong. And the materialists are right. There's nothing out there. Just 
dust, ashes to ashes, dust to dust, atoms bobbing around. Well, life is a blink in eternity. We're all going to go the same place. Makes no difference. All your castles and cars and whatever, it's all impermanent. It's all going to vanish. Are we all going to go to the same place? <laughs> uh, well, from my point of view, yes, we are all going to go to the same so when place. We, when we get rid of these bodies, are we maybe not right away. <laughs> maybe not right away. Well, different traditions have different teachings about this, and they are couched in cosmologies, which are difficult for us to grasp. I think we have to take them not as literal truths about the world, but trying to express something. So, for instance, uh, in Hindu and Buddhist cosmologies, it's true. In a certain sense, you get another chance. Whatever you do in this life is going to determine your future conditions, whether in heavens or hells or upper lives or lower lives and all this. But the teaching is always this. The human birth is so rare and such a precious opportunity, because you can only get enlightened in a human birth, by the way, in all these traditions. You can, gods can't get enlightened. Gods and goddesses, if they want to get enlightened, have to take a human birth. Mm. It's so rare that you're foolish to waste it. Because here you are now with this opportunity. Not only are you here now, you've been exposed to these teachings. Now, so if you take all the people alive, this is from their point of view, their cosmology, that in itself is an incredibly rare, precious thing. But then to be exposed to a teaching, to have a, a, you know, an inkling, to have the sense that there is something called liberation, enlightenment, the truth that sets you free. And then not to take advantage of that, it's even more foolish. You know, materialists say we're all going to the same place, meaning that nothing. And uh, mystics ultimately say we're all going to the same place because everybody returns to God, if you like that. Or, better yet, I mean, this is, again, a way of expressing it. Truly speaking, you can't ever depart from the divine. It's a kind of a delusion that you are actually who you think you are and not who you really are. The truth of the matter is you never actually left the divine. Why do we have so much fear around... Where you talked about um, the, the part, the thing you read about the beauty from the from the Sufi song, um, and the whole thing about losing ourselves and, and experiencing that beauty. Why is there such a a fearful place about that for us? You can think of it this way: there is a kind of false self that looks like a self. It's really a sort of pattern. It's like a, a sparkler. When you were a kid, uh, at night, and you took a sparkler and you whirled it around, you whirled it very fast, to the point it looks like there's a ring there. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. There's no actual ring there. You can't take the ring and put it on your finger, you know? But it's an illusion that's created, that there is a ring there. And it's created out of a certain kind of movement. It's a pattern. And the self is created out of desire and fear. It begins with ignorance. It begins with, uh, with mistaking a distinction. But then it builds. And it builds out of this desire and fear, desire and fear, going round and round and round and round. And 
The self, the small self, the ego self, is nothing but a pattern of desire and fear. Now, what it is afraid of is that it's going to be exposed, if you like. That it's going to disappear. That it's going to dissolve. That uh, A spiritual path, at a certain point, uh, the ego starts resisting it mightily. Because the end of the spiritual path is the end of the ego as as the center. Not the end of thought, not the end of feeling, not the end of anything that is actually there, but the end of this illusion that there's something there that isn't there. And so there's a resistance. And the resistance is the fear of dissolving. Somebody's like, fear between you personally, you, you contract with something you're, you're aware of. Uh, say the fear of God or the fear of uh, you coming close to it. Well, that's, that's what I kind of do. I acknowledge it. I acknowledge it. Yes, very good. You're aware of it. And why, what is it I fear in that sense? Absolutely recognize it. And you know, the, the biggest problem here is that people always want to do something about it. They want to conquer it or get rid of it. Fight or flight. But the spiritual attitude is neither. And the, the great exemplar of this is the Buddha sitting under the Bodhi tree. On the eve of his enlightenment, he sat under the Bodhi tree, and again, mythologically, Mara, who's the personification of delusion, realizes that the Buddha's come to the moment of liberation, and this is the last chance he'll have to get the Buddha off his seat and prevent this liberation from happening and the teaching from happening, because Mara's going to be on the run for the rest of his life, you know. And so he says, i got to get the Buddha off his spot under the Bodhi tree. So the first thing he does is he sends his daughters. These are all subtle beings, you know, Davis. Beautiful daughters. They come out and they do these sensual dances and this and that, you know. And the Buddha sits there, unmoved. Now this is very important, and this is a, fits in very with what we're talking about in the way to handle desire. He doesn't say, get thee behind me, Satan, or something. Do you know what I mean? He just sits there, unmoved. He, if you think of this as your own consciousness, when desires arise, don't start doing battle with them. Don't start feeling evils come upon you. Be like the Buddha, unmoved. He, he neither gives in to them, nor does he push them away. Well, that doesn't work. So what's the next thing Myra does? The next thing, he takes all his sons, who are these demon warriors, fierce and breathing fire and smoke and full of warts and ugly and everything else, and they all attack the Buddha. And they throw their weapons and rant and rave and, you know. And again, the Buddha sits there, unmoved. He doesn't fight them. He doesn't run from them. He sits there, unmoved. And then there are several different versions of the last temptation. My favorite one is, and it speaks to uh, con great concern of spiritual seekers, Myra comes to him directly and says, look, he says, you're a prince. Your father's a king. You're going to be a king someday. You've got responsibilities. You've got a wife and kids at home. You've got to take care of business. You're being very selfish sitting under here, this Bodhi tree. And the Buddha's not moved. Why is this story so great? I mean, it's a beautiful story about the Buddha, but the true point of the story is this happens to everybody.
Not you won't be sitting under a Bodhi tree with, you know, but you'll be sitting in meditation. And these things will happen, you know. The desire to, you know, cut it short because, uh, you know, you want some uh, cookies or something. You get hungry. I don't know. A little fear. Or the sense that, what am I doing? This is really a waste of time. I got things to do. You know what I mean? They're all right there. It's like he is, he's going to a certain direction, a certain point, mm -hmm. like the Buddha is. But how can, how can he, it's kind of hard to define what he's going to. Uh, the, as a human, you want to achieve that goal. It's this paramount to getting, uh, say, your occupation. So you can't steer away from that goal. Well, you could, you could make it a parallel there. The Buddha's occupation was to liberate all beings. So, in order to do that, he first had to find out what liberation was himself. Do you think he realizes at that point how close he is to liberation? I don't know what uh, a Buddhist would say about that. I'll tell you from my experience. I would guess that he was the farthest away in his whole spiritual path. Is that the point where he just gives up? And and there, there are hints of that in the story. Yeah. Before that, he's been practicing for six years, doing these strenuous meditations. And then he even takes up this practice of almost starving himself to death. It's described that when you looked at him, you could see his backbone through his stomach. He was that thin. And then finally, on the brink of death, he decides this isn't working. So he gives it up, and his friends are outraged by him. You know, they're saying, oh, you've abandoned your vows and so forth. And he drags himself by this stream, and he just about faints away. And a woman comes, and she gives him... Uh, some rice and milk, I think it is. So he takes this, refreshed. This is a meal. And then he goes, sits under the Bodhi tree. Now, the way the story is told is that he determined that he was going to sit here until enlightenment happens. I think he sat under the Bodhi tree because he didn't know what else to do. He'd come to the end of his rope. There was no place to go. He'd burned all his bridges. He tried all the practices you could possibly do. And at that state of emptiness... It wasn't that he was resisting desire or fear. What difference did it make anymore? All the dancing girls and all the armies in the world don't mean anything to him anymore. Now, in the story, it's through the watches of the night, various aspects of the teaching are revealed to him. And then finally, it's very interesting what happens. If you think of it this way, that he sat under the Bodhi tree until he got liberated, that he made that resolve and sat there, and then in the morning, he saw the morning star, and he changed his mind and left. There's a, there's a subtlety in that one. I'll leave that one with you. Well, you can chew that one out. Explain that one. <laughs> <laughs> I'll pick out the um, salient features of it. The Buddha resolves to sit under the Bodhi tree until he attains liberation. Just before the sunrise, he sees the morning star. He changes his mind and leaves. Let's let's make that <laughs> the close of the formal part of this uh, talk. Any of you who have to go, because we are running a little over here, can uh, leave. And or if you want to just get some tea and come back and talk some more, check out the library, do anything you want, you're welcome to.